And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, as we resume our series on strength for today, hope for tomorrow from Revelation. This morning, Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, and this is the Word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And all those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold in the, God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord? And glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have your word that is true and that it's certain. So, Father, it's sobering and it's encouraging. So, Father, give us understanding, Lord, of of what you've laid out for us here, how it applies to the way we're to think and live as your spirit would direct us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just when you got all your Christmas decorations put away, I hope for you, um, I'll talk a little more about, about Christmas. Not so much focused on what we just celebrated in the sense of Jesus coming as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, or our excited uh, expectations about His second coming uh, when He shall reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, um, and we'll be with Him forever. What I want to talk about is what I would call the darkest side of Christmas. The part of the Christmas story we seldom talk about, we seldom think about, because quite frankly, it's not, well, it's not very Christmassy. Uh, you know, statistics tell us uh, that about nine in ten Americans uh, celebrate Christmas. Uh, surprisingly, a majority of non-believers, 81%, uh, celebrate Christmas. 87% of those who have no religion celebrate Christmas. Seventy-five percent of the of Hindus and and Buddhists in our country celebrate Christmas. Um, uh, Americans largely believe elements of the traditional Christmas story are true. More than seventy-three percent of Americans believe the virgin birth is true. Eighty-one percent believe he was laid in a manger. Seventy-five percent believe that the wise men, the Magi, came and offered gifts, and that an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds to announce the birth. In fact, nearly two-thirds of adults, 65%, believe that all four of those things are true. And only 14% say that none of them happen. And quite frankly, though, 
I'm not sure how many Americans would really be excited about celebrating Christmas in, and now just 351 days, by the way, um, if they knew the rest of the story. You see, John introduces the rest of the story of Christmas to us in chapter 15. At the same time, he gives us who are believers a place to stand as we anticipate this. So we anticipate the return of Christ and the rest of history. And we need a place to stand because of the shifting cultural sands of our culture, which no longer anchors itself in truth and reality, but rather in feelings, in place of facts, in fantasy, a pretend world in place of reality. And make no mistake, there's a ton of pressure on the church today to conform to the culture's whims. The church is about the last holdout in society uh, against the onslaught of cultural change that denies reality and truth. The Christian community is one of the few that realizes the emperor has no clothes, that what the culture believes at this moment is not sustainable. And we have that in common with the original readers of Revelation. They too were under tremendous pressure to conform to the culture around them. Uh, And for that included for them great economic pressure. The Christian faith was making them so different from their neighbors, they no longer fit in. And friends, we increasingly are not going to fit in. So what's the place for us to stand? Let's go to the text and see. We'll start with the sober reality of verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So you see something great and amazing. It's another sign. Here are seven angels ready to, to deliver seven plagues, which will finish up the wrath of God on the world that has rejected him. That, friends, is is a sober reality, this final outpouring of the wrath of God. So this is the really silent side of Christmas that we just do not talk about a lot. It's not mentioned much in the carols, all right? Uh, At Christmas, we, we get so excited about Jesus' first coming, we celebrate that, we anticipate He's coming again. And we know when He comes, He's triumphant for the church. We sing joy to the world. But friends, when he comes, it's judgment for those who have rejected him. He comes with the vengeance that John the Baptist anticipated that we talked about last week. And this is crushing. That's what we said when we left Revelation a month ago. The horror of, of, of God's judgment that will fall on those who reject Jesus should give us a, a driven urgency to reach even the Vladimir Putins of this world with the good news of the gospel. And so John notes this. And then he sort of leaves us hanging as he shows us a a stunning reality as we look at yet another interlude of celebration. Now keep in mind, as as we've read through Revelation, how often it seems that the progress of the book, the further the story, um, is paused to show us scenes of worship. And this should be a real clue for us for the crucial role that the corporate worship of the people of God plays in our lives as a place for us to stand. The world thinks that what we do here each week um, is extraneous to life. They think it's unimportant. 
They think it's an optional activity. But the reality is that corporate worship is at the very core of the Christian life. It's what we're made for as people of God, made in His image. When we gather here each week for worship together as the body of Christ, friends, this is the real world. Whatever eternity is like for us, we know that worship is the central focus. So let's look at verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So John's vision uh, moves from those seven angels to the sea of glass. It's mingled with fire. And then there are the people standing there by the sea with harps in their hands. Now remember, for the Jewish people, for the Hebrew people, the sea is always a symbol of chaos. Um, because the Hebrew people were not a sea-going people. The sea was the great unknown. But here the sea is calm. It's like glass. It has fire and people debate what that means. I would suggest, given the Exodus imagery that runs through this passage, that it's the, the, the fiery pillar that represents the presence of God. That's what brings the peace. And now this verse, by the way, for you music aficionados, uh, along with Revelation 4, is the basis for the 1969 song, Crystal Blue Persuasion. All right, just so you'll throw that in for you. Uh, Tommy James had recently become a Christian, and he wrote this song uh, about the hope of the transforming power of the gospel. Um, just keep that tucked away for when you're on Jeopardy one day. All right, so uh, this crystal glass sea is the very same pavement that we see described in the Old Testament, Exodus 24, when Moses and the elders go up to worship. It's what Ezekiel sees in his vision of Christ in Ezekiel 1. Keep in mind, John uses earthly words to describe heavenly realities. It's not an easy thing to do. Now, who are these people standing here with their harps in their hands, worshiping? Well, it says they're the ones who have conquered the beast. They're the ones who defeated the beast. When we read through that, it seemed no way possible for mere humans to stand against the beast. But they've won. Now, how did they win? Well, John told us back in chapter 12, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved their not their lives even unto death. These are conquerors who endured much suffering from the beast, even death, but already secure because of Christ's work on the cross. See, what we see on earth is not always the reality that heaven sees. Viewed from the planet earth, it, it looked like the beast would conquer the saints, defeat them. But through the blood of Christ, they've conquered the beast, it says, and its image, and its number. Now, how do you conquer a number? Well, the, the, the point would seem to be uh, something important here. Recall the mark of the beast was given to allow people to function in this world freely and easily. Well, they did not compromise their faith. They did not take the number upon themselves. Uh, they didn't make it easier on themselves by taking the number. They stood firm. 
no matter what the cost was, even their own lives. That's the word of their testimony. For instance, today there are many who want to, to go along with the world to get along with the world. They're willing to compromise on, on many of the issues surrounding human sexuality rather than look what the Bible says. You know, the liberal church a, a hundred years ago uh, capitulated on things like the virgin birth and the divinity of Christ and Jesus doing miracles because they said they wanted to be more appealing to the world. Um, they began to go easy on sin because they said, let's not sound so condemning. Well, I've got news for you. Sin's a pretty big deal. It's not a little deal. All right? Sin is condemning. And so like the Apostle Paul, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the forgiveness of sins in Christ. That remains our core value forever. And so these believers are gathered by the crystal sea. And it's reminiscent of how Israel stood by the Red Sea. The believers are watching the destruction of the dragon and the beast. And a huge celebration breaks out because the battle's won. The battle's won against those who persecute the church. The battle's won against those who demand uh, conformity from the church, who demand compromise. The battle's won against those who waged any kind of war against the Lamb. And anticipating that final outcome, they begin to play their harps, they begin to sing. Notice it's in present tense. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Uh, these are not two different songs. A song of, by Moses or, or uh, about Moses. A song written by or about the Lamb. But it's one song. Because the Exodus victory points to the greater victory won by Christ at the cross. The song's full of Old Testament allusions and language. I mean, think for a moment, what would it have been like to stand by that Red Sea uh, and watch the destruction of the Egyptian army? You were thinking that the, the Egyptians were coming after you, they were going to overtake you, they were going to capture you, take you back to Egypt. And so then for a shock and awe about the power of God intervening on their behalf and save them when the Red Sea closes over top of the Egyptian army and they all drown. So they sang what we call the Song of Moses came immediately hit on WSNI, Sinai Radio. Uh, and that memorable first line, I will sing unto the Lord because he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. And curse flash that we sing, by the way, is not part of the original. All right, that follows that for those of you that know the song. And of course, then we have the song of the Lamb already in Revelation. So Eugene Boring writes this, As Israel once stood on the banks of the Red Sea and celebrated God's liberating act of the Exodus, the church will stand on the shore of their heavenly sea and sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And so this song combines those two songs together. There's elements here There's from Jeremiah, from the Psalms, from Deuteronomy. It's a rich song of worship because it brings about God's greatness. You see, friends, it's God's greatness that compels us to worship Him. Stephen Reese said this, This is the distinctive note of Reformed Christianity. 
We are obsessed with God himself. We're overwhelmed by his majesty, his beauty, his holiness, his grace. As Phil Newton points out, when you read this, we don't hear of them speaking about how great they did this or how creative they were under the persecution. It's only about a song of praise for God who has delivered them. See, friends, this is where a heart for worship, a place for us to stand comes from. Sir Thomas says, this is always the way biblical worship, to begin with God and end with God. Worship is impoverished and becomes so much idolatry whenever God is not at the center. And so we learn about earthly worship as we watch these heavenly worship services. We want our worship here to be as much as possible, but the worship will engage in for eternity. Uh, and it's important we get the worship of God right. Because this is the place we stand each and every week to reorient our lives in a world that's actively rebelling against God. So we praise God for His amazing deeds, His amazing salvation, His works for us. We praise His justice, His consistency. We praise Him that He is the true King over all the nations. And that very poignant question that highlights the hymns in the middle. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And the implied answer is that there should be nobody who would refuse to worship and praise God. Sadly, the power of sin has clouded the vision of many so that they cannot, they will not glorify God. And then there's that final declaration. Only God is holy. And ultimately, all nations will worship God, willingly or unwillingly. All will either triumphantly acknowledge His holiness and bow in worship, or they'll grudgingly be forced to bend the knee to the Almighty God before they find themselves for all eternity in the great pit of hell. Friends, in worship, we celebrate God. This is the anchor of our lives. Acknowledging God for who He is and always done for us. There's an old gospel hymn, some of you are thinking of. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. How He left His home in glory for the cross of Calvary. In the chorus, yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory. Gathered by the crystal sea. Then the last verse, soon he'll come, the Lord of glory come, the church, his bride to claim, and complete the wondrous story. Come, Lord Jesus, come again. And so the promise made to Abraham has come to pass. And now we have the necessity of the great commission reinforced. Let me emphasize again, this, this should motivate us to seek to carry out the Great Commission. Knowing how the story ends for unbelievers. Friends, if we have any compassion at all, we'll want to get them the good news of the gospel. Because notice John looks again. Verse 5, after this I looked. In the sanctuary, the tent of witness uh, in, uh, in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels 
was the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So John sees the tent of witness, again, Exodus language. This is the tent, the tabernacle where God came and met with his people and revealed himself to them. The seven angels are dressed like Jesus was earlier in the book, and they're dressed for for holy war. And the four living creatures are mentioned again. And one of them hands the bowls of wrath to the angels that will watch next week be poured out. And then we're reminded of, of this, the solemnity, the tragedy of the whole thing. The glory of God and His power causes the sanctuary in heaven to fill with smoke. There's not going to be any coming in or going out uh, until the bowls of wrath are poured out. The smoke, you see, prevents anybody from entering the sanctuary until God's wrath is complete. The implication is this. The day for mediation and prayer is over. It's gone. The time to repent is over. As William Hendrickson notes, solemnly, God's mercy is forgotten. His compassion withheld. And His patience suspended. The end has come. So what about us? A couple things today. One, there is really, really, really good news for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, whose faith is in Him. Because at the cross, Jesus drank the cup of wrath, the cup of God's wrath that was destined for us. Jesus took all the fury of God towards all the sin of every single one of us who trust in Him upon Himself at the cross. He took sin's penalty for us. That's why we sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so we contemplate what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we respond with, with wonder and with singing, and with love, with worship. That's what corporate worship is. Coming together as the people of God to celebrate a great salvation, a great deliverance, far greater than the Exodus. Celebrating a reality that the world knows nothing about. And that's why we've taken notice of these repeated worship services throughout Revelation. Revelation has been showing us that glimpse of human history from the time Christ came at Bethlehem and until He comes again. And John's taken the camera from God and he's, he's focused it in different perspectives, different directions, so we can see how history's moving to Jesus' triumph. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that time, all the redeemed will be forever with the Lord. And those who rejected Jesus... Face eternal wrath. And knowing that, 
We gather now as the people of God, corporately worshiping God, giving us a place to stand. It says to our children, to our grandchildren, it says to our neighbors who saw us drive out this morning, the people we work with who know what we do each Sunday, our classmates at school, our friends, that we have a place to stand in a world that every day is losing its way more and more because it's in determined rebellion against God. And so week by week we come and we're reminded we're, reminded we're His because of what He's done for us on the cross. And we're strengthened for walking in this world. And we're preparing for the day when we will join with the saints in praising God. Songwriter, singer Graham Kendrick makes this observation. Of all the songs in the book of Revelation, not one is a solo. The 24 elders sing and cast their crowns before His feet. The united voices of countless angels resound. Every living creature in heaven and earth under the earth and all that's in them are joined in one song. Those who are victorious over the beast are given harps and a song to sing. In every case, multitudes of people or angels unite in the same song with absolute unity. Yes, you can worship God by yourself. But God demands that we worship Him together. Can't help but know that tomorrow night there's going to be another worship service in Southern California. Lots of you are going to join and you're going to watch. You're going to be dressed in red and black, not your high school colors, I might point out. All right? You're going to be chanting, barking. <laughs> You're going to be singing songs that give a sense of identity, a sense that you belong to a larger group. There'll be people in Texas and elsewhere decked out in purple and white, identifying as horned frogs, go figure, singing their songs, identifying with a larger group. And our singing today identifies with a larger group. It's a global people from all nations. One who's already beside the crystal sea. All of us obsessed with the beautiful Savior, the Lord of the nations. A singing people are going to sing the song of Moses. The song of the Lamb, confident that when He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. So we stand on Christ's solid rock and we worship Him. And so when one day, when we will stand by the sea of glass, when we're singing that song of Moses the Lamb, we will not for a second regret the time we devoted to the worship of God here on earth. Nothing prepares us more for eternity than what we do here today. Let's exalt God. Let's be equipped to engage the world, to point them to the name above all names before Christmas comes and the smoke fills the temple. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Our great God, a God of mercy, a God of grace, our holy God.
It's a tremendous privilege to gather as your people and worship you. So, Father, keep that as our focus in a world that's rebelling as hard as it can. Father, this is the place to stand. Together as the people of God. Proclaiming your greatness, your glory, and your great salvation in Jesus Christ. The great hope we have as the people of God. That Jesus Christ is the Lamb. And He's given His life for us. And He's dressed us in His righteousness. And He's made us His own forever. So Father, we celebrate that. Lord, break our hearts for those who do not know it. Lord, give us the desire that the whole world hears the good news of your Son. Father, is anybody here that today doesn't know you? Lord, show them your Son, Jesus Christ. Draw them to the cross, even today we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.